Welcome to a special edition of Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life. It's Tom Shakely. I'm joined by Noah Brandt. Noah, how you doing? Tom, I'm doing absolutely fantastic. I ate so much turkey this week that I can barely move. How are you? Wasn't it a wonderful thing? And we escaped the state police forces, the state censors, uh, trying to ruin Thanksgiving. It was a good thing. Nobody came for me, but little do they know, I got the 20-pound turkey all for myself. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Well, Noah, describe uh, what are we going to hear today? It's a special uh, special episode. We're going to journey back into the past once again. Yeah, you know, I always love when we go into our uh, Americans United for Life archives, you know, that we've been collecting since 1971. We have some some really cool stuff in there. And today we're going to listen to a piece of audio from July 23rd in 1993. Tom, do you know what was going on on July 23rd, 1993? Gosh, that would have been the hearings for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? That is right, Tom. That was the confirmation hearings for uh, then-Judge Ginsburg to ascend to the highest court in the land way back in 1993 after she was nominated by President Bill Clinton. And it's a really interesting uh, snippet of the hearing we're going to listen to. It features AUL's president at the time, Paige Comstock Cunningham, uh, on this great panel with a couple people that we still might recognize today, one of those is a uh, K. Cole James, who's now president of the Heritage Foundation. That's incredible. And we've got, I think, at the time, right, Joe Biden was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, wasn't he? Yeah, that's the most amazing thing, Tom, is at the, at the very beginning, our listeners will hear uh, Vincender Biden speaking. He's chairing the committee and he's talking to the AUL president and the other panelists. And, uh, you know, sound, sounds very similar to the Joe Biden of today. And this is also kind of funny. Our listeners won't be able to hear this, but if you on the actual video, uh, Elena Kagan is sitting right behind Senator Biden as like a, a staff attorney for the committee. Whoa. So now, yeah, now Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, who looks, you know, very young. She's a pretty young lawyer during this time is uh is also there for this hearing <laughs> that's incredible you know it's so much uh it, it paints such a picture right of dc power politics you know some of these folks have had long careers they've been around a long time even though you know they emerge maybe into the national scene a lot later in their careers what do you think that says about our country it's, it says something interesting and you know so you have elena kagan who goes on to be a supreme court justice you have joe biden who goes on to be president you have uh, Keiko James, who goes on to be leader of D.C.'s largest think tank, the Heritage Foundation. And you have Paige Comstock Cunningham, who at the time is president of AUL and goes on to chair uh, President Trump's fetal tissue advisory board. So the, these are people who had a big impact then and over literally the past, this is 1994, so almost 30 years, have continued to have a really big impact. And uh, some of the things I know we both got to listen to this before we started speaking here, Tom – some of the things in Paige's statement uh, are things that we're still talking about today. She talks a lot about their alliance interest, right? I know that's something that, that you're interested in and Clark has talked about before, about sort of this fallacious idea that women rely on abortion and that's why the, the Supreme Court needs to fight to keep it legal. And she talks about how that's bunk. That's right. You know, it's something we've talked about, of course, also with the great scholar Erica Bakiaki and some of her mm. books, some of the writing she's done. In really drawing this out, this this toxic notion that was introduced by the Supreme Court uh, in the Planned Parenthood v. Casey ruling, where it really it tried to salvage some sort of philosophical basis for abortion, for the violence and self-harm of abortion, by saying, you know, well, what we said in 1973 with Roe, 
you know, about abortion, we created this trimester framework where human beings could sort of earn rights that we would grant them based upon the stage of their development, the stage of their abilities, cognitive or otherwise. They sort of threw that out, what they created with Roe, and they imposed a new one. They said, you know, whatever you think about abortion, we sort of think at this point, maybe people rely on it, you know, and so maybe that reliance, that utilitarian view, that right or wrong, Maybe America just needs this now. Right. If, if we take it away, there'll be these grievous harms to women in the in the world. Right. And of course, the problem with that is that it sets aside those fundamental human rights, first of, of the child, but also of, of mothers and fathers. Uh, and so the court uh, made a serious error in Planned Parenthood v. Casey as much as it did just differently as it did in the Roe v. Wade decision. And yeah, you hear that in in Paige's testimony. You hear her addressing that very issue. Yeah, that's right, Tom. Another thing that Paige brings up, which just really gives me whiplash to the time we're in right now, is uh, she talks about Roe v. Wade as a litmus test. She's criticizing the sort of pro-abortion side, saying that that uh, President Clinton made said that Roe v. Wade will be his litmus test and will only nominate candidates who will support Roe v. Wade. And it's taken pro-lifers uh, almost 30 years to catch up. But right. At, I, I, right, but I think that sort of Cinder Hawley and other people have finally brought us to this point where we can be honest and say we should only support candidates who say that Roe v. Wade is fallacious and needs to be overturned. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I think you see that, too, in the recent Supreme Court hearings uh, for somebody like Amy Coney Barrett, right, who's now right, on right. the Supreme Court. You see these folks, you know, you look at, at somebody like a Josh Hawley and you maybe look back and, and see the people sitting behind him and you can wonder, are we looking at future judges? Are we looking at future Supreme Court justices even in the same way? Yeah, if you pull up the video of what we're about to hear on our website or on C-SPAN or wherever else, it's just amazing to see, yeah, that that young Joe Biden, the young Elena Kagan, these young people who are still such a core part of our public life. Yeah, something else, Tom. I think that we should uh, that we should go ahead and listen to this audio. All right, Noah, I think we've set the stage. Let's go back to July 1993 and hear what it was like to be in the chambers of the Senate Judiciary Committee, as we hear from Paige Cunningham at the hearings for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm Tom Shakely with Noah Brandt on Life, Liberty, and Law with Americans United for Life. comprised of representatives of a number of groups wishing to testify in opposition to the nomination of Judge Ginsburg. The first is Paige Comstock Cunningham, who is president of the Americans United for Life in Chicago, uh, Illinois. And uh, the next is Rosa uh, Kamari, am I pronouncing it correctly? Rosa Kamari, a partner in the firm of Hamilton and Kamari in Pasadena, California. We also have with us uh, Nellie Gray, who is the president of the March for Life Education and Defense Fund and has been a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a, a welcome testifier at a number of hearings. This is not her first time uh, to testify at this and other hearings. And we welcome her. And uh, um, is it 
and uh, and uh, Susan Hirschman, executive director of the Eagle Forum in Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, also on this panel is Kay Cole James, vice president of the Family Research Council, but I understand she is uh, in the hearing uh, on, in Labor Committee uh, at this time. And last but clearly not least is Howard Phillips, chairman of the Conservative Caucus, who is testifying on behalf of the U.S. Taxpayers Party. Is that correct, Howard? On behalf of both organizations. On behalf of both organizations. I welcome you all, and I would invite your testimony in the order in which you've been recognized. Ms. Thank you, Cunningham, Mr. Chairman. Welcome. Thank you. Mr. Chairman and members of the Judiciary Committee, I thank you for this opportunity to testify on the nomination of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the United States Supreme Court. Um, I'm an attorney, a graduate of Northwestern University School of Law. I'm a wife and I'm a proud mother of three children. I think all those things bear on the testimony that I'm giving today. Because, because it is likely that I have reaped in my own career from the seeds that were sown by Judge Ginsburg in her efforts to abolish sex discrimination. Um, as you mentioned, I'm also the president of Americans United for Life, which is the legal arm for the pro-life movement. And we are the, nat the oldest national pro-life organization in this country. We are nonpartisan, and we are secular, and we are committed to the protection of the vulnerable and the innocent human life from conception through natural death. Although Judge Ginsburg may possess the credentials to sit on the Supreme Court, we are concerned about the process by which she was nominated and her views on abortion and appreciate this opportunity to fully educate the nation. And that's why I appreciate about this process of a thorough uh, look and an opportunity to speak. I'm troubled because for the first time in our history, a Supreme Court nominee has been required to pass a test, an abortion litmus test. President Clinton made this very clear before he nominated Judge Ginsburg to the High Court. This is a litmus test which prior nominees were wrongfully accused of passing and why one of them was defeated. I think it's a tragedy that supporting an act which ends the life of one being and scars the future of another should be considered the supreme test for the Supreme Court. And it's just as disturbing as this unprecedented litmus test is Judge Ginsburg's attempt to justify the decision in Roe versus Wade on the ground that abortion is somehow necessary for women's equality, that women cannot be equal in the law or in society without abortion through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason. Outside of abortion, Roe versus Wade has done absolutely nothing to advance women's rights. State and federal courts have handed down dozens of decisions striking down various forms of sex discrimination. And few, if any, of these courts, including the Supreme Court, have relied on or even mentioned Roe. The real advances in women's rights have come not through the court cases, but through laws enacted by Congress and by state legislatures. These are the laws that have banned sex discrimination in public and private employment, in the sale and rental of housing and education, laws that mandate equal pay for equal work, to name just a few. And you know what? Not one of those laws depends on abortion. Judge Ginsburg has repeatedly stated that abortion is protected by the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution or that that ought to have been the basis rather than the Due Process Clause. But she has gone farther than the court and suggested in her writings that there ought to be a public policy supporting taxpayer-funded abortions. 
Her writings also reveal that she would oppose laws protecting women in crisis pregnancies, laws upheld by the Supreme Court just a few um, months ago last year, laws such as a woman's right to know, a 24-hour reflection period to think about information about a decision that she cannot change and that she will live with for the rest of her life, laws involving parents. These laws receive overwhelming public support. After all, they are reasonable laws. Judge Ginsburg has testified before you that abortion is central to a woman's dignity. But what is this legacy of Roe? Has a generation of abortion on demand solved any of the problems for which it was offered? Has abortion reduced the rates of child abuse or illegitimacy or teen pregnancy or the feminization of poverty? Has it enhanced respect for women? After 20 years of abortion on demand, abortion has flunked the test as the miracle cure for the social problems it promised to solve. The only obvious benefit of legalized abortion is the economic one. A $300 abortion is much cheaper than a $3,000 delivery of a baby. But what about the cost to women's bodies and women's lives? Thousands of women now bear the scars of perforated uteruses, lost fertility, and higher breast cancer risks. Close to 70% of all relationships end in the first year after an abortion. Many women are abandoned by the baby's father as soon as the crisis pregnancy is, quote, solved by abortion. Some women say they can't even pass a playground or turn on a vacuum cleaner because it sounds like a suction machine. All too often, they fall into a pattern of self-abuse, that abuse which mirrors their abuse by others. The destruction and tragedy caused by 28 million abortions is a gaping national wound, a wound whose ugliness is covered up by polite tolerance and rhetoric about a woman's right to choose and keeping government out of private choices. And make no mistake about it, coercion to have abortions is real. The coercion may be possible precisely because abortion is legal. That's the unspoken price for progress in our careers. Female re medical residents in an article in the New England Journal of Medicine reported that tragedy. We attorneys have discovered that same price. And why not? Because if a woman demands that complete autonomy in her abortion decision, it only seems fair that she bear complete responsibility for the consequences of that. And women, once again, are left alone to pay the price. Our radical abortion policy, which Judge Ginsburg apparently supports wholeheartedly, would not expand or advance women's issues. I believe it has actually set the clock back on women's dignity, including the dignity of motherhood. Children should be a shared responsibility. Our educational goals and professional dreams should not depend on an elective surgery that creates second-class citizens out of the voiceless. Abortion goes against the core values of feminism, equality, care, nurturing, compassion, and nonviolence. If we women who have so recently gained electoral and political voice do not stand up for the voiceless and the politically powerless, who will? Those who promote abortion rights do not represent the women of America. The 1.8 million members of the National Women's Coalition for Life prove that you can be pro-woman and pro-life. Our feminist pioneers, including Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, cited with approval by Judge Ginsburg, 
were strongly against abortion and recognized it as child murder and a crying evil. Judge Ginsburg wrote that the greatest judges, quote, have been independent thinking individuals with open but not empty minds, individuals willing to listen and to learn. Unless there is convincing evidence that Judge Ginsburg is willing to re-examine her premises about abortion, which she has so recently stated, then we cannot withdraw our objection to her confirmation. We ask the committee to seriously consider this statement and our more extensive written testimony. The future of women, men, and generations of many yet unborn depend on it. Thank you. All right, if you enjoyed this journey back into the past to the U.S. Senate Judiciary hearings for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen to the show, rate it and leave a review. Message a friend and let them know you've discovered life, liberty, and law. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, just email us at life at aul.org. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.